Pop Culture Affidavit, Episode 11, The Columbia House 13. Ready for a smile on your face. It's just the right time and just the right place. The music you love, the movies you share, the things that make you care. Keeping value high, we'll serve you so. Our relationship will grow and For special Columbia House offers this month in selected magazines, newspapers, and your mail. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that covers everything random in the world of popular culture. I'm Tom Panneries, and this time around I'm going to be talking about something that was a rite of passage for many in my generation and slightly older than me, which was being a member of Columbia House, the record, tape, and CD club that you used to see advertised in comic books, magazines, and even on TV throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s. But before I get to that, I've got email. Two emails specifically. They're both from Chris Keith. Um, Here's the first, which is about the St. Elmo's Fire episode, which was episode number nine from back in April. Greetings, Tom, he says. By the time I finish this email, I will have completed my second viewing ever, I know, of St. Elmo's Fire. It was always one of those movies that I should have seen or should have liked more. And all my favorite people in it from the Breakfast Club, San the Gingers, I don't think I noticed, didn't notice Schumacher. By the way, Joel Schumacher's picture on Wikipedia makes it look like he makes it look like he has a baby arm. Kind of does too, if you look at it. Anyway, Keith, Chris continues. I think that the reason I passed was that it was just too adult for little children, little 10-year-old me, that or I was more interested in the other movies that year that you mentioned. Anyway, I saw bits of it over the years, but I didn't sit down and watch the whole thing until I was around 30 or 31. It was... All right. My comments for the film were broken down to the various actors. One, Judd Nelson. Yeah, I've been saying the same thing about those nostrils for the last 25 years. I'm thinking that the Tony Montana desk would easily be hoovered by Mr. Nelson in under 15 minutes. I'm not sure if he had a drug problem in the 80s or 90s, but I have a sneaking suspicion that cocaine would be a big player. I could say the same for Adrian Brody, but that's just too obvious. Judd's greatest movie was From the Hip, where he plays a smart-ass lawyer. I may have to track that one down for a viewing. I haven't seen it in years, but I do remember John Hurt scaring the hell out of me. 2. Ali Sheedy. Why? A love triangle with her? Really? I mean, I've been to the Georgetown area before and seen some torn up women, but there's hotness there too. Judd settled for her. And then Andrew McCarthy latches on as well. I, I don't get it. I mean, if they were holed up at the Pentagon and the pickings were slim, then maybe? No, even then. I will say one thing about Ali Sheedy. At least she found a decent conditioner since Breakfast Club. I don't know about that, Chris. Ali Sheedy in the mid-80s, especially around these movies, has this sort of... I don't know what it is. I mean, she's not conventionally hot in the way that, say, 
oh Elizabeth Shue is in the Karate Kid or Kelly Preston or is in uh, in in Secret Admirer or um, Mia Sara in Ferris Bueller. Um, I'm thinking of somebody else and and I'm blanking. Crap! I had it on the tip of my tongue and it wasn't Kelly LeBrock. It was somebody one of those movies who played the girlfriend. Crap! Ah, anyway. Um, but anyway, she had Ali Sheedy had this sort of girl next door thing going, uh, even though she wasn't completely innocent. Um, my being attracted to her in Samuel's Fire falls under the same umbrella of my being attracted to, say, Lori Laughlin in Secret Admirer, Diane Franklin in Better Off Dead. You fall for her the same way you fall for like your best girlfriend. Because one day you kind of finally turn around and realize, wow, she's actually pretty cute. I mean, you always knew that she was attractive, but like all of a sudden you're like, oh, wow, okay. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. I've had those relationships before. I don't get Ali Sheedy's wardrobe in this movie, though. Not, not one bit. Not something that, 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 I, that I really understand. Chris's email continues. Three, Rob Lowe. You know, up until the West Wing, I could never see what was the big deal about this guy. Chicks dug him, but come on. Chicks love Vin Diesel and Channing Tatum, so you can easily question that judgment. West Wing. Now, there was some good work. That I really liked Sam's Don't Tread on Me flag in his office. In this movie, I compared him to a couple of my friends, and just like you said, those friends are inevitably still working in shit jobs, and I try to come up with excuses why we can't hang out. Ah, yes. Thank you, kids, for being built an excuse. Oh, yeah. Rob Lowe, by the way, would go on to be in Youngblood, and, uh, which is an underrated 80s movie, if I ever saw one. Uh, it took a while for him to get his act together, especially after that disastrous Oscar performance with Snow White and the sex tape that was leaked in around 88 or 89 or 90. I think it was, I think it was 89 or 90. Uh, remember when sex tape actually killed careers, by the way? were, like, scandalous instead of something that, like, you know, Kardashians did to get noticed. Um, I agree, though, that he brought it on the West Wing, uh, a show that was incredibly solid for quite a bit of its run, and uh, the first few seasons were magnificent. Uh, If you haven't had a chance to check out the West Wing, I'm pretty sure it's all on DVD and you can rent it. It might be available for streaming here or there. Uh, If you haven't had the chance to check out Rob Lowe on Parks and Rec by the way, Parks and Recreation, um, he kills on that show. He's great. It, I love Parks and Recreation, and, and he, he's one of the guys who's just absolutely great on that show. Coming back to Chris's email, for Emilio Estevez, uh, his dad's name is Ramon Estevez. Huh. When I start a point about an actor and focus on the dad's real name, that tells you something. Uh, I, I liked Emilio, but wow, his career really went nowhere unless involved involved Disney in hockey. I'm proud to say that I am one of eight people in the world who saw wisdom in the theater. Dad paid, so I had an excuse that, and I was 11. Chris, I've I've never seen wisdom. I, I have to check it out. I've heard I've heard things about it. I've heard it's not that great, but, you know, I'm a masochist. Um, as for Estevez, you know, he's actually still kicking around. He's done his fair share of directing in the last decade or two. Uh, he did some movie that starred Martin Sheen a couple years ago, and it's somewhere in my neck queue and it's something about a walk or it's like his 
Estevez plays somebody who is walking and died or something like hiking and he died and Martin Sheen takes up the hike for him and um, it's a self-discovery thing uh, it, it looked in the trailer it looked good so I might actually have to check that out it's buried in the bottom of my Netflix queue somewhere So, but it sounds like that uh, Emilio Estevez is one of those guys who got secure enough perhaps financially or professionally that he didn't have to pursue big name projects and could do stuff that he was interested in I mean, I might be talking out of my ass here. For instance, for for instance, he might be not be able to find work. But in this, if but if that's the case, um, I definitely can respect it, especially if he's the stable one of the family, considering who his brother is. Maybe Amelia is not winning. Back to Chris. Uh, five to me more. Meh. She looks so plastic these days, she just grosses me out. Yes. I can easily believe I can easily believe the rehab story you detailed. And hey, Demi, you actually take the cigarettes out of the pack and smoke them individually, not the whole carton. Damn, she sounds like Maud. What are you talking about? I don't think she sounds like Maud, Chris. Anyway. <laughs> Six, Andrew McCarthy. Another what happened to him guy. I always thought he had something too. Maybe not quote unquote it, but something. Oh well, Hollywood had to make room for such quality actors as Keanu Reeves and Steven Seagal. We'll always have Weekend at Bernie's, Mr. McCarthy. Yeah, Chris, McCarthy showed up as a character actor in various roles through the 90s, and I think he does a lot of stage work now. Um, I will say, though, that, that Weekend at Bernie's is not a bad movie. It, it's... It's a bad movie, but it's a it's a silly movie and it's a fun movie. My favorite scene comes during the credit sequence, though, um, where it's just so damn hot in New York City, and they have to walk to the office to verify whatever the hell they're looking at. And they're walking through Central Park, and a guy tries to hold them up, and McCarthy just kind of is like, just looks at him as like it's I I can't remember the exact line. It's basically he's like it's too hot for this shit, and just keeps going, and the guys just stay there with a the gun like. What just happened? First 10 minutes of the movie, and then you have a bunch of stuff. I I might cover that one day if I'm feeling up for it. Uh, we get a Bernie's 2, on the other hand. That is a torture someone by prying their eyelids open Clockwork Orange-style movie. Trust me on that, and don't go rent it. But yeah, McCarthy is one who's managed to somehow survive. He pops up every once in a while. Chris continues with Mayor Winningham, into which he says, moving on. Yeah, I'm finished with the movie, and I have to say I still enjoy it. Unfortunately, I don't relate to any of them. Sadly, I wouldn't would relate most, mostly relate to Kirby, well, without the stalker part. Thanks for the trip down memory lane. Next, in watching, in my watching queue is Better Off Dead, followed closely behind, possibly behind, by the first Nerds movie. Uh, Chris, I'm glad you liked the movie. It's definitely uh, not great cinema, but it's a fun flick. Uh, full disclosure here, I actually emailed Chris back um, after getting this because it was like I had just finished the, the Say by the Bell episode or I was just about to finish it or whatever, so I wasn't able to include it in the last email. And I, I recommended to him The Sure Thing, which is another incredible, incredible Cusack movie. I covered The Sure Thing on the blog. If it wasn't last Christmas, it was the Christmas before. It was December of either 12 or, or 2011. Um, the Sure Thing 
John Cusack, Daphne Zuniga. Cusack plays this guy who is um, whose best friend Anthony Edwards is. You know, Cusack's at an Ivy League school. Anthony Edwards is out at UCLA, and he sends him a picture of this girl. It's played by Nicholas Sheridan, and he tells him, you know, you need to get out here at Christmas. I've set up a date with her for you. She's a sure thing. He at college, Cusack meets Daphne Zuniga's character, who's this very very uptight nerd, you know, overachieving nerd type. And they get along at first, and then they hate each other. And then they get stuck going cross-country with each other. There's a great bit part by Tim Robbins as this show tune singing guy and what have you. Uh, but the two of them, it's basically a road movie and a sex comedy kind of thrown in together. And it's it's a Rob Reiner flick, meaning that there's a lot more heart to it and there's a lot more fun to it than, say, Porky's. Um, it's not as vulgar, and it's really 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 done very very well um i I highly recommend it um it's from about 85 another cusack movie which is actually going to be um the topic of a future episode uh say anything directed by cameron crowe from 89 um you probably know this one uh and I'm going to say that and then leave it because I cannot say enough good things about that movie and and I'll I'll go on to that. Also, if you want to round out your Cusack um, going on into the 90s anyway with the really, really hitting the highlights, rent gross point blank and then rent from the early 2000s, uh, High Fidelity, both of which are great, great movies. Uh, My second email, though, I'm going to go on to the second email also from Chris, came just as I was getting the notes together for this episode. In fact, um, I got it the other day. Uh, it's about last episode, Saved by the Bell. Uh, his email subject is Fair Bayside, by thy side we will stand and always praise thy name. Greetings, Tom. I'll admit I was never a diehard Saved by the Bell watcher. It wasn't that it wasn't amusing or at least interesting. Translation, Kelly looked hot. Yes, Kelly Kapowski, moment of silence, please. Maybe it was the way Slater called Jesse Mama. God, I hated that. Oh, and Mario, you aren't fooling anyone. It's time, Mario. It's time. You, Tom Cruise, and John Travolta. Okay, on to memories of this show. One, Kelly Kapowski. You cover virtually everything about her, and I agree completely. Sadly, I think I stuck with 90210 because she was on there for two reasons that were amazing. Yes. They are, aren't they? Um, I saw a picture of her recently, and not bad for 39. If you're bored, search for the video of Tiffany Thiessen with Dennis Haskins crashing her interview on the Today Show, I think. She wants nothing to do with this show. I respect the decision. It's not like she's Aaron Moran or anything. She has a career. Nothing that I watch, but a career nonetheless. She doesn't want to be Kelly forever. Yeah, I get the feeling that she's probably that she spent a lot of time trying to live it down, Chris. Um, but out of all the nine or two actors, uh, sorry, out of all the uh, say by the Bell actors, it's probably her and like Mark, Mark Paul Gosler, who've had the best acting careers. Um, there's another really really funny video. It's a funnier die video of her. Um, something about her just basically joking about how hot she is. Like, I don't need to find work. I'm hot, and people come looking for me. It's very, very funny. Um, it is right up there with the Ava Mendez sex tape video on on there, uh, on Funny or Die. Uh, really, really worth worth checking out. Mario Lopez, he's had a strong career going as well. I, I will definitely admit that. But he's, like, turned into, like, a host. Like, 
he's like uh, Seacrest without the media mogul thing behind it. Because uh, Lopez hosts like America's Best Dance Crew and he's done Miss America pageants and some other contest reality shows and those sorts of things. And yes, Tiffany Amber Thiessen is gorgeous. She was on Fashion Police uh, a couple of weeks ago. was sitting in for, for Juliana Ronsick and Anyway, uh, Chris continues too. I laughed out loud while listening. Mad about you is what actually got me to watch an episode of Saved by the Bell. There was a random line that Paul had about watching Saved by the Bell because it was always on every channel. I just had to check it out. Yeah, Chris, that was the bit I was talking about. It's it was like through that episode, and they would turn the TV on, and you'd hear the theme song. Um, and Mad about you is a show I loved in its first few years, um, and and might have. And and I kind of you're mentioning it makes me want to rewatch it. Uh, I don't know if it's available on DVD. Uh, it was being rerun here and there, but the reruns of the show didn't last very long. Say compared to say like Friends, uh, which seemed to be rerun in perpetuity for a while, um, or Seinfeld. Uh, but that's a the first few seasons of that show are a really really great marriage sitcom really well done and yeah again i'll have to i'll just find that back to to chris's email i know this is getting long but you know you love me uh yet again i'm listening to your show while having my phone handy yes you might as well host tom's book club i bought the 80s movie book you recommended months ago that is jonathan bernstein's pretty in pink the golden age of teenage movies by the way uh he says he needs to finish it too and then last night i bought chuck klosterman's book uh that would be by the way thank uh sex drugs and cocoa puffs thank you amazon app and thank you tom as long as the recommendations do not involve sparkly vampires or white trash fairy waitresses who hook up with vampires and werewolves i cannot believe my wife watches and reads that sack house shite <laughs> I have not read either Twilight or True Blood I think the last vampire novel I read was Dracula which I reread a year or two ago around Halloween uh, I enjoyed that more than I remember I enjoying it when I read it back in the in like 93 because I had read it after seeing the Coppola movie the Chuck Klosterman book is a great one. He's got a few others that are worthwhile, although there are times when I think he's trying to teach a seminar on pop culture or something. Uh, but I'd recommend that. I'd recommend Fargo, Rock City, and Killing Yourself to Live. The latter two have more to do with music than movies or anything else, but both of them are great. Might wind up covering more books on the show from time to time. I just finished Marvel Comics, The Untold Story. Uh, that was excellent. I have to thank Scott Gardner for sending that my way. In the vein of music right now, actually, I'm reading Cassette from My Ex. It's a book that has its genesis in a website. It's basically story after story, essay after essay, of people sharing tapes that their exes made for them. Hence the title, of course. Really, it's proving to be a fun read and getting and really getting me all nostalgic for the days when I'd be making mixtapes for girls. Uh, and it makes me want to apologize to those girls for makes, making such shitty mixtapes. Um, but really again thanks uh thanks for the email chris and uh I'm, I'm glad you're i'm glad you're listening to the show and writing in uh if you'd like to write in popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com or you can go to the facebook page facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit and leave a comment or um there are show notes and a blog post about this particular episode and you can leave a comment in there and i will try to read some of the stuff on the air 
When we get back, I'm going to talk about Columbia House. I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of Columbia House, the record tape and CD company, as well as give you a little bit of my personal history as a Columbia House member. Hey, everyone. Sean Engel here. And Strange Disembodied Voice here. Hey, it's good to hear from you. It's been a long time. How have you been? What have you been up to? Oh, not much. Working with other podcasters, palling around with Simon Cowell, prepping for the Mayan apocalypse. You know, the usual. Neat. Anyhow, uh, glad we got back together since the show, Just One of the Guys, is coming to a turning point, and since you were there at the beginning, I thought it'd be appropriate that you be here now. Ooh, are you finally changing formats and doing your epic coverage of the Al Mogram Opus US 1? Um, no, I'm gonna start coverage of the Kyle Rayner stories in Green Lantern. And that, supposedly, is more impressive than a trucker who can receive CD signals through a metal plate in his head? Undoubtedly. Plus, I'm still going to be covering the ongoing saga of Guy Gardner. Mm, will he be getting a metal plate in his head which allows him to receive CD signals? No, nothing quite that ridiculous. Although, the stories will involve him getting alien DNA, becoming a living weapon, and punching Nazi dinosaurs. Seriously? Yep. So all of this, yet the epic tale of a trucker who's vying to avenge his death of his brother caused by a man who sold his soul to the devil for a satanic 18 healer is just too goofy? Precisely. <sighs> Whatever. So where can I find out about all these changes? Lots of places. For one, you can go to www.justoneoftheguys.lipson.com to download the shows, check out the covers of the books, and leave comments on individual show postings. You can also find the show on iTunes just by searching for Just One of the Guys podcast, and you can leave a review there as well. So after you finish these books up, you'll cover US-1? Maybe. I've still got that Dallas Dynasty show with J. David Weider to do. And Scott Gardner has approached me about doing an NFL Super Bowl podcast that he wanted to do in conjunction with the 25th anniversary of its release. It's come check it out every Friday at justoneoftheguys.libson.com. And we're back. So I had intended to do a pretty in-depth history on Columbia House, but a couple of things happened. First, I'm lazy. Second, Columbia House is a pretty extensive Wikipedia page, and I really couldn't find much that wasn't on the page and felt that, well, going really in-depth would take me way too long and would basically be me reading Wikipedia. So the Columbia House brand was introduced in the early 1970s by the Columbia Records Division of CBS Incorporated as an umbrella for its mail-order music clubs, primary incarnation of which was the Columbia Record Club established in 1955. It had a significant market presence in the 1980s and early 1990s. In 2005, a longtime competitor, BMG Direct Marketing Incorporated, formerly the RCA Music Service or RCA Record Club, purchased Columbia House and consolidated operations. In 2008, the company, as well as the book club operator Bookspan, was acquired by private investment group Najafi Companies, and its name was changed to Direct Brands Incorporated. Although Direct Brands shut down music mail order operations in mid-2009, it continued to use the Columbia House brand to market videos in the U.S. and Canada, selling DVDs and Blu-ray discs via the controversial practice of negative option billing. DB Media's Canadian assets ceased operating on December 9, 2010, and all staff were dismissed, while U.S. operations continue as usual. Oh, oh, you didn't want me to read the Wikipedia page. My bad. Really, though, for those of us who were teenagers at some point in the 70s, 80s, or 90s, it was hard to open up some sort of publication without seeing an ad for Columbia House or its competitor, uh, BMG. Basically, they got the rights to distribute certain albums that would have a massive catalog that its members would get, where they would sell CDs at a price that was comparable to what was available in your local record store. 
Now, while mail-order like stuff like this has basically gone the way of the dinosaur as a result of, well, the internet, during those three decades, Columbia House and BMG were two places where you could get quite a bit of stuff that you wouldn't be able to find in the store. Most people were introduced to Columbia House through these ads, which often showed popular album covers of the time and said you could get like 10 albums free or 12 for the price of one or two or or 11 for a penny or or what have you from there you'd be enrolled in the club and each month would receive a new catalog with a postcard that told you uh what that month's latest new release selection was um the negative option billing that i mentioned in my wikipedia reading was basically that if you wanted to get that cd the the feature of the month all you had to do was hold on to the card the club would send it to you and bill you for it if you didn't want the cd you check the box on the postcard that the Columbia House record thing came with telling you didn't want it and there, therefore you wouldn't be charged for it. So you got a ton of CDs at first and eventually you realized that the selection they had wasn't as great as you thought it was and you were sick of returning or forgetting to return that postcard every single month and then you'd quit the club. My history with Columbia House begins not with the CD club in the early 90s which is what the bulk of this podcast episode will cover actually begins with what was then known as the CBS Video Club in the mid-80s. I don't know what prompted my father to sign up for the CBS Video Club, but around 85 or 86, we got about 10 VHS movies for the better part of the, ne- and for the, better part of the next five or six years. We get the video catalog and usually return the postcards, occasionally getting movies. The thing was, though, with the exception of some of the films, which were maybe 1995, most of the movies were like $80 because movies really weren't for sale back in the 80s. It was mostly a rental thing. And I think that was the price that was offered, but let's look like what the video stores were paying for them. I don't want to say, I don't want to say they were paying 80 bucks a pop for movies, but, but you know, there was a reason that your mom and pop video store had one, maybe two copies of a movie. And I think it had to do with the costly overhead of getting the copies of the movies. And then eventually Blockbuster would get like, you know, 20 copies of some piece of shit movie that just came out and you wanted, you know, a movie that was made a couple of years ago that you never got around to seeing yet. And there would be no copies available because they probably chucked them or some shit. God, I hated Blockbuster and still pissed off for what they did to video stores anyway um so we got cbs video uh which eventually did kind of morph itself into columbia house uh this is cool because this is the way uh, like i said there was before movies were regular for sale at places like sam goody um or suncoast or wherever you buy videotapes in the mall remember when you used to like buy like the softcore porn too uh because like or used to, used to browse through it like they'd have shit like the cable version of you know some Chasey Lane movie or something you'd be like yeah I'm gonna buy this and you bought it and you like you know anyway um so but that was like the latter half of the 90s you know if I'd say about like 94, 95, 96 those stores started stocking more VHS they popped up um and then of course they transitioned to DVD and and a lot of them are actually out of business now uh Best Buy is still kicking around but again You've got Amazon, you've got Netflix. There, there isn't a, a huge market for the retail, um, specific retail stores. Plus, some of those stores were pretty overpriced, too. I think that was what hurt them competitively. I remember uh, from that original 10 from that hall and back in 85 or 86, we got... Uh, I don't remember every movie we got. I know that we got 
the first three, maybe the first four Star Trek movies. I know we had the first three. They were like special edition packaging because they had black boxes with like gold foil on them um, and didn't have the poster but had like screenshots uh, from from stills from the movie, uh, whatever movie it was. Um, I would have preferred the versions with the actual movie poster on them because the Star Trek movie posters were always pretty cool. Um, we also got Young Sherlock Holmes, a movie that I think is underrated. I really, really liked. remember liking, as well as uh, this random comedy with John Murray, the brother of Bill Murray, and James Keach, the brother of Stacey Keach, and, and a few others, uh, Moving Violations, um, which I watched way too many times uh, as a kid but and liked and and may track down again and watch again just to see if it if it was as good as I remember although I'm pretty sure it's not um, but I would try to track down young Sherlock Holmes that is an underrated movie anyway my experience with the CD club does begin in 1993, 20 years ago. Specifically, it begins right around June 23rd, 1993, because that was my 16th birthday. And I got exactly what I wanted for my 16th birthday, which was a CD player. I actually got a... It was a Sony system. It was almost like a huge like Ghetto Blaster-sized boombox with detachable speakers... Um, it had a CD player, a radio, and two tape decks. And you could dub the tapes, and you could tape off the CD player and everything. Um, I'd been bugging my parents for a CD player for a couple of years, because at the time, all I owned was a late 80s kind of small radio, cassette player radio. It wasn't even a boombox size. I mean, it was, I guess, technically a boombox, but it wasn't like, you know, big, big boombox. And that had a cassette deck. It had, like, a broken antenna. But what i do is, you know, I'd, I'd get my friends who had CD players to tape certain albums for me so I could have copies to listen to while I was like doing homework in my room and stuff. Um, being that they were my friends, and this was high school, they'd copy the album for me, but then they'd bitch that I should spend either spend the money on buying the tapes and not be such a cheap, cheap piece of shit, or get a CD player. Nice people, right? Um, and I always reply, well, I'm working on that. You know, my birthday's coming up, or whatever. My parents were not the type who kind of ran out and bought stuff. Either I had my own money for stuff, or we'd have to wait till Christmas and birthdays. Um, so I'm not used to kind of buying albums and what have you, um, you know, spur of the moment. I'm used to waiting till like Christmas. And whatnot. Lo and behold, my 16th birthday rolls around at the end of June of 93. Despite the fact that I had to take the New York State Chemistry Regents exam that morning, in fact, um, since I was born at 8.30 in the morning, the exam began the moment I turned 16. I'm sitting in the gym at Sable High School taking the Chem Regents. And I got a 92 on that sucker, and I busted my ass for it because I wasn't the best chemistry student. Um, I don't remember much about that class, to be honest. I remember a couple things. One, I came down with bronchitis in like February or March of that year and missed like a week and a half and actually had to take the makeup test for one of the units, which was a um, take-home and did terribly on that from what I remember. And uh, the other thing, and anybody who went to Sable High School uh, 
especially in the in the 80s or 90s, will remember Mr. DePel, who looked like Dave Thomas, the founder of Wendy's. So that was the chemistry teacher. At one point, the guy grew like a rat tail. I don't know. That, my friend Jen put her hair in a Bunsen burner. Not like she had picked off a split end and put her hair in a Bunsen burner. And if you ever smell burning hair, it smells like ass. Anyway, I'm 30 minutes into this podcast and haven't even really talked too much about Columbia House. Um, I got the CD player, and I, I wouldn't get the CD player until that night. I took the chemistry regions in the morning, and I got the CD player that night. I wound up getting three CDs. I got Metallica's Injustice for All, The Spin Doctors, Pocketful of Kryptonite, and Queens, live at Wembley, 1986. Um, I wound up getting a few more from family members at my birthday party uh, because my cousin Jason's birthday is two days after mine he's a couple years younger than i am but we have like a big you know kind of joint family party um we do the same thing for my sister my sister's birthday is august 6th and i have two cousins one was born august 7th one was born august 8th and those two cousins are literally a day apart um my sister is a good i guess it's got to be a good like 15 16 years older than them so we have this running joke that like you know jane and elizabeth celebrate this birthday thing and they kind of tack nancy on so we Call it the end Nancy birthday party because it's like because of a cake one year that said happy birthday Gene Elizabeth oh and, and Nancy so you know we bust our balls for that because it's it's fun to bust your sister's balls um but anyway uh so I remember at that party I got the stranger uh unlawful from for unlawful carnal knowledge I probably got a copy of Born to Run uh and I want to say at some point got ten I don't think I got that from Columbia House um. Soon after, though, soon after all this, I asked my parents if I could join Columbia House. Uh, I wound up taking advantage of an offer. I probably got out of a TV guide or something. Um, and after all of the free and paid stuff in the initial offer, I wound up with 13 CDs. Uh, they were a collection of late 80s and early 90s metal and grunge that started a CD collection that by the time I stopped buying CDs altogether, which was a couple of years ago, and my last CD ever purchased was American Slang by the Gaslight Anthem. Uh, my collection finally totaled around, say, 750 or 800 CDs. Now, that's combined with my wife's collection. When we got married and moved in together, or we moved in together and eventually got married, we put all our CDs in one pile, which is why the first CD in my collection went from being Back in Black by ACDC to ABBA Gold. What I've decided to do uh, for this episode was go through each of the 13 CDs to the best of my ability. Because while I can definitely remember that some of these albums were part of the Columbia House 13, some of them might not have been, I just remember that they were some of the first CDs I owned. Um, I know that at some point in the first few days of having a CD player, I did get 10 by Pearl Jam. I also got Get a Grip by Aerosmith. I still have 10. I don't have Get a Grip anymore. I, I gave Get a, Get a Grip to my sister along with a, an Aerosmith Greatest Hits CD. Um... And that was back when I was in college because I wasn't interested in, in, in current-day Aerosmith anymore. And my stoner roommate had sold the Pandora's box box set to me for like 20 or $25 for pot money freshman year. So I had no use for the Aerosmith's greatest hits, so I gave it to my sister. Um, I'm not sure if I got these relatives or what have you, but those are the honorable mentions. The following 13 albums, though, they are the beginning of my CD collection and a long, long history of questionable taste in music. Um, and I'll get started them on them in a moment. 
after uh, this trailer. In the decade of the 1930s, even the great city of Cleveland, Ohio, was not spared of the ravages of the Great Depression. In a time of fear and confusion, a character emerged that would entertain and inspire millions of children and adults alike. He began not as flesh and blood, but as a simple line drawing. His comic book adventures thrilled millions around the world. The magic of radio gave to his name a breathless signature and sound. Then with television came a whole new generation to idolize his exploits. In the 70s, the world believed a man could fly. In the 80s, he was reborn in the comics, and the 90s saw his death, rebirth, and marriage. In the 21st century, he returned to the big screen and saw his origin changed and retold on several occasions. Through the decades, he has gone by many names. The Man of Tomorrow. The Last Son of Krypton. The Man of Steel. His strength is incredible. His name is legendary. His battle is never ending. Faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. My name is Michael Bailey, and I host an internet radio show called Views from the Long Box. Superman is my favorite character of all time, and in 2013, he is turning 75. Because of this, a large portion of the episodes this year will be about the Man of Steel, in a series I'm calling Superman, Superman at 75, 75, the Celebration, celebration of a Legend. I'm going to mark Superman's birthday in fine style by examining all aspects of the character's history, from the comics, to the movies, to the television series, and beyond, both alone and with the best and brightest of the podcasting world. It may not be every episode, but the bulk of views in 2013 will be all about the Man of Steel. He is the first and greatest superhero of them all, and he deserves no less. Superman at 75. The Celebration of a Legend. A series within a series, and the biggest birthday card a fan can give his favorite hero, only at Views from the Long Box. Views from the Long Box is a Fortress of Bailey-Tude production. New episodes drop every other Tuesday over at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, and for this series, over at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And so we're back again with a look at 13 albums that started my collection. I'm going to go in alphabetical order by band, and I'm going to give a little bit of information about each of them, talk a little bit about why I wanted them way back when, give my opinion after a listen, re-listen nearly 20 years later, and then recommend at least one song from each album. So let's start with Dirt by Alice in Chains.
So this was Alice in Chains' second album. The first was 89's Facelift, which I've never owned, but I do believe features the song Man in a Box. Uh, Dirt was basically on a list of albums that I made sometime during my sophomore year of high school in an effort to make sure I was listening to the quote-unquote correct type of music. I mean, I think it's been well established by now that I was never cool in any sense of the word. I'm, I'm pretty sure I asked my friend Brendan to help me compile the list because for some reason I thought he was keeper of all things cool in music. Uh, that and he was the one who was making me tapes of like Metallica albums and stuff from CDs. So when I saw what he was listening to, I began making a list. Alice in Chains was on that list. And since Dirt was not only their latest release, but also available through Columbia House, I went ahead and I ordered it. I think that out of all of the big grunge albums that came out between 91 and 93, this is one of the ones I listened to the least. And there's a qualifier there. Um, First, I don't own an album by Soundgarden. I have nothing against Soundgarden. They were just never a band I really got into or around to collecting. Second, I didn't like Nirvana when I was in high school. Um, And therefore, I didn't get a copy of Nevermind until about 2002. Pearl Jam and Stone Temple Pilots are the two bands I listen to the most out of the quote-unquote grunge sound. I'm really only using that word as a qualifier because, in all honesty, I don't think it was a great adjective for to describe the music. Um, we kept using the word alternative, or at least I kept using the word alternative, but, you know, alternative to what, right? Um, anyway, Alice in Chains got listened to the least out of these albums way back then and at least dirt got listened to the least all the way through giving it a listen again more than two decades later i can kind of see why it's a good album most of the songs are really good but it's just plotting um i mean they're not bad musicians and lane staley's vocals really have been copied and carbon and, and, and imitated more i think than anybody else that sort of i'm gonna sing like this you know that from from the late 90s um scott staff i'm looking at you uh there's some genuine muscle behind everything in a way that a lot of the kind of bands from the late 90s didn't have but this album's just so slow and it might be me. It might be my preference. I, I, I heard um, the album that changed my life is Dookie by Green Day. And uh, that's because it was my gateway to punk. And, and I really, really like punk. And, um, and, and I like music that's up-tempo. And I started liking that in about 94. I think I'd always liked it, but it really, really took hold in 94. So this slow, heavy stuff from groups like Alice in Chains uh, was hard to commit to um, and still kind of is. The best song in the album, though, uh, the one I'd come back to even if I don't want to hear anything else by Alice in Chains, would. Uh, First, I love the bass line in the beginning. Second, it's tight, tight song, has great vocals, a great ending, a must if you're creating a compilation or playlist for the 90s. Second on my list, the first of three albums by the same band. That band, Guns N' Roses. The album, Appetite for Destruction.
I don't really have much to say about this record that probably hasn't already been said by four by a million before by a million people. I'm not really into Guns N' Roses, especially not as much as, as I was when I was a freshman and sophomore in high school. But this is one of the top five albums of the 80s. It's easily in the top 20 albums of all time because even though it's 25 years old now, yes, people, it's been 25 years since your parents confiscated your copy of Appetite from your room once they heard the closing of Rocket Queen or saw the skulls on the GNR logo or had already confiscated Girls, Girls, Girls by Motley Crue and figured that, well, this couldn't be good for you either. 25 years. And I personally heard this album about 25 years ago when I was in the 5th or 6th grade. Uh, I didn't own it at all until I had a few tracks on a mixtape, um, namely the most well-known ones, You're Welcome to the Jungle, Sweet Child of My Paradise City, Mr. Brownstone. Uh, and then it was in Columbia House, uh, so I got it from Columbia House. What's funny about my copy is that it doesn't have the original cover art. Uh, the original cover art for Appetite for Destruction was a painting based on the illustration Appetite for Destruction by an artist named Robert Williams. Because that featured, it was it was a robot rapist and a naked woman and some sort of thing attacking the rapist or something, it's in the centerfold of the booklet. But because of the fact that it had a naked woman... Um, and this violent image on it, a lot of stores refused to stock the album, so the record label created the Appetite, Guns N' Roses Appetite logo with the cross at each member's kind of as a skull uh, on it, um, which has become iconic since then. What's interesting about my copy is that the booklet's printed all screwy. The front cover of the booklet actually is a collage of photos of the band. And the back cover is the Skulls logo. So what I had to do was I had to flip the CD book over and insert it backwards into the jewel case to get the Skull cover. I don't know if that was a misprint or intentional on Columbia House's part. Or the record label's part. As for the album itself, I still break it out every once in a while, because even though it's 25 years old, even though Guns N' Roses is so not my type of music anymore, I can still listen to this all the way through and not find a bad song. I will admit, I usually actually skip Welcome to the Jungle, because I really can't listen to it anymore. It's not a bad song, but I've come to associate it, I've, I've heard it too many times, and I've come to associate with this sort of these aggro douche nozzle guys over the years, and I just, I can't. I can't abide it anymore. Um, it's kind of the same way that I'm so sick of hearing Mysterious Ways by U2 that whenever I listen to Octung Baby, I skip that song. Um, because all it's always on the freaking radio. The best song on the uh, album. Um, it's a toss-up for me between Paradise City and Sweet Child of Mine. So what I'm going to do is go with option C and give you a best song that's one of the ones that's not like a quote-unquote hit. That is Think About You. Uh, played at the opening of the segment, and man, what a great piece. The guitars are solid, the lyrics are flat-out awesome. It reminds you that Guns N' Roses was a huge breath of fresh air in the midst of all this really, really bad, bad, lightweight hair metal from the 80s. And if my friend Mike is listening to this, Ferran is like, what are you talking about? Because he's like really into hair metal, but but now I I, I oh. but yeah, GNR Appetite. If you do not own a copy, go and own a copy. Um, the third and fourth albums, 
Also by Guns N' Roses and naturally are Use Your Illusion 1 and Use Your Illusion 2. honestly don't have a lot to say about these albums uh, that I didn't say in my November Rain episode, which appropriately aired in November of, of 2012. I think it was episode 3. Um, I prefer Use Your Illusion 2 to Use Your Illusion 1. It's probably because You Could Be Mine was the first song I really liked off that album. Uh, it was the first album that I had and I listened to on tape. I rarely, if ever, listen to uh, any of these all the way through. I still think you could trim several songs from each album get a true, solid follow-up to Appetite except uh, this bloated mess. Um, in fact, I'm going to give you five songs that are must-listen. Uh, from one, You Ain't the First, which I actually included in episode four of the soundtrack for The End of the World. Uh, November Rain, of course, believe it or not. It's bombastic. It's excess. It's bloated. It's actually a really good song. And then from two, uh, Breakdown... Estranged, which is a song that I also mentioned on user, on on the November Rain episode, uh, pretty tied up, which is which is a fun fun song. Uh, what I recommend doing is finding these and a few other tracks from the albums on iTunes, downloading them, making a playlist called Use Your Illusion, and almost creating that great album from two good albums. Now, moving away from Guns N' Roses. And coming in is the fifth selection from Columbia House is Elton John's Greatest Hits, 1976 to 1986. So, I'm not sure why I picked this. In fact, I remember being kind of embarrassed that I owned it because it was the type of music that your mom would listen to. Uh, the album, from what I understand, was only released because of licensing rights. Uh, they were going to do a Greatest Hits 3, and some one company got the rights to some songs, and another company had some songs, and that's why they put this out. It did go platinum eventually. Probably because Columbia House offered it. Uh, there's nothing wrong with Elton John. There's still nothing wrong with Elton John. I like Elton John. Um, but there are phases of Elton John. The late 70s to mid 80s isn't one of the good ones, at least completely. Uh, I think I was trying to get to music here, though, and I knew that it, I at least liked some of Elton's music. This was the only greatest hits compilation that Columbia House was offering, and that's why I picked it. Uh, quite frankly, I couldn't get through it on a re-listen. Uh, the 80, early 80s stuff from albums like Too Low for Zero is worth the price of admission, I guess. Um, Don't Go Breaking My Heart. Nicely kitschy, worth a couple of listens to, but gets tired very quickly because there's only, only so much Kiki D you can tolerate. 
And if you're going to go buy an Elton John Greatest Hits compilation, go and find one of the more recent ones, like Greatest Hits 1970-2002, or one of the definitive ones, because um, that's got the whole scope of his career, and... uh, and and the earlier stuff is really worth it. Oh, you can also go back and find some of the individual albums. Uh, Captain Fantastic, Goodbye Eloic Road, Honky Chateau. Like these are really really good albums um, that are worth it. I still love Mona Lisa's and Mad Hatter's and and Someone Saved My Life Tonight and, and some of these other songs that aren't on this particular album. The best song that is on here, um, I played. I I'm still standing when I started this segment. Uh, that can get tired at times. It's very 80s pop. Uh, the one I don't get tired of is, I guess that's why they call it the blues. I've always loved that song. Uh, it's a piano player thing, I guess, but but I've always loved that, that song. Coming in at number six, the soundtrack to Last Action Hero. So the 1990s were the peak of the big soundtrack era, which goes back to the soundtracks, uh, the origins of which are in the soundtracks to movies like The Graduate from 1967, which had that great Simon and Garfunkel, that iconic Simon and Garfunkel soundtrack. Um, American Graffiti in 72-73, whose soundtrack my parents have on CD and I have bits and pieces of, uh, which is all these oldies and, and what have you. Uh, it is a great, great soundtrack. Uh, Saturday Night Fever in 77. Uh, and then it really, uh, the, the era of soundtracks kicks up with, in the 80s, Flashdance, Footloose, Beverly Hills Cop, Top Gun, uh, a host of teen movie soundtracks like The Breakfast Club and Pretty in Pink. Uh, the ones from the early 90s are abundant, and a few are actually essential. One of them, which isn't on this list because I didn't get it from Columbia House, in fact... I'm not sure I actually ever owned it on CD. I might have just had bits and pieces of it on tape. Uh, That's the soundtrack to The Crow. Um, Another one of the essential soundtracks and the essential albums from the 90s is on later in this list. Uh, In fact, there's a total of four soundtracks on the Columbia House from the Columbia House uh, 13 that haul from 93. Last Action Heroes are first, and this was another CD that I felt required to own because the list of bands in the soundtrack was kind of on that essential bands list that I made at the time, or at least what I felt were essential bands at the time. What's interesting, though, is that the movie and its soundtrack are both examples of how the 1980s died a very slow, agonizing death. I mean, I remember that this movie, which I think I only saw like once on video and never really liked, was Schwarzenegger's like Waterworld. Um, I know he recovered very quickly with True Lies, which is a great movie. Um, Last Action Hero is the death knell for the big action hero flick from the 80s. After all, what was the big theme for the last half of the 90s in summer blockbusters? Well, that was the disaster movie. Yeah, yeah, guys like Bruce Willis and Will Smith, but your Schwarzenegger, Stallone, Seagal, Van Damme, after like 93, 94, really struggled to find an audience. Um, 
Seagal's star had faded by the mid-90s. Schwarzenegger and Stallone really had a tough time with it. Uh, Van Damme had a heroin addiction, so that, that probably sidetracked a lot of him. But but really, that, that whole genre took a dive uh, for the better part of, of, of the decade of the 90s. And what you've got here in the soundtrack is the last gasp of 80s metal paired up with coming alternative by, by the, this time that really had taken hold. There are some pretty good Alice in Chains songs, two of them, in fact. Uh, there's a Def Leppard power ballad, though, Two Steps Behind, which went all the way to number five in 93. There's a halfway decent Queen Strike song called uh, Real World. And then there's Big Gun by ACDC. Well, it sounds just like every other ACDC song, to be honest with you. Um, I couldn't get through this. I found myself skipping over stuff. I don't think I really listened to it all the way through when I first got it anyway. I'd recommend any of the songs that I've already mentioned, um, but I'd also recommend the full orchestra-accompanied version of Dream On by Aerosmith uh, that was done for the 1991 MTV 10th Anniversary Special. It's done very well. As well as Cock the Hammer by Cypress Hill. Cypress Hill, man! I heard that song... I, I listened to that song on the way to work uh, the other morning while I was coming in, and I, I forgot how freaking cool Cypress Hill is. I don't have a lot of Cypress Hill, but I was like, all right, Cypress Hill. Um, and any time you can be reminded of how awesome Cypress Hill was, it's pretty sweet. Can I say Cypress Hill a few more times? Cypress Hill, Cypress Hill, Cypress Hill. Coming up next is the only non-music album on this entire list. Uh, there's a song or two on it, but the majority of the album is non-musical because it's a comedy album, and that's Dennis Leary's No Cure for Cancer. Folks, I'd like to sing a song about the American dream. About me, about you. About the way our American hearts beat way down in the bottom of our chests. About that special feeling we get in the cockles of our hearts. Maybe below the cockles. I bought this because in the early part of 1993, this was getting a lot of airplay, albeit in censored form, uh, especially on stations like WBAB. That's the classic rock station on the south shore of Long Island that I would listen to while I was doing my homework. When I found out that the song was part of a whole album, I ordered the album from Columbia House. And what's funny is I don't think I realized that it was a stand-up comedy album. I think I wasn't used to comedy albums back in the day. I had a couple of Monty Python ones that I had taped. But to be honest, I figured that this was just kind of like a dirty version of Weird Al or something. And I love me some Weird Al. But... It's a stand-up. It's, it's, it's a stand-up bit. And if you know the history for No Cure for Cancer, you know that it's taken from Leary's various live stand-up shows. There was an accompanying television special, which gets replayed every once in a while, or for a while would get replayed on, on Comedy Central. And uh, the script of the show was actually published as a book. I, I own the book. The book was actually the very first thing I ever offered off of Amazon.com. And the date I ordered it, because you can actually go back and look. If you've, I've had the same account with Amazon since since, since then. And uh, and I look back, and my very, very first order was October 10th, 1997, and it was No Cure for Cancer. Uh, that was my junior year of college. Uh, furthermore, you know there's a little bit of controversy surrounding the album, as well as Leary's act. Uh, 
Uh, he's been repeatedly accused of lifting stuff from the late Bill Hicks. Having heard Hicks's act, seen the excellent, excellent, excellent documentary, Bill Hicks, American, I can totally see that, and I kind of agree with quite a bit of what's been said, or what I've heard. However, I can't exactly slag off Dennis Leary, and there's two reasons. First, this is still a funny album, and to be honest, the stuff that's clearly his, which are the bits about his father, they're really great. Although, I will admit that if you really want to see a great comedian talk about his father and in a format, and especially that's just flat out just amazingly awesome, go check out Christopher Titus's Norman Rockwell is Bleeding. It's a lot of the material that went into his sitcom. A sitcom, by the way, which was amazing and underrated and canceled too soon. And the story behind its cancellation... Um, had to do with Titus pissing off the Fox network and, and what have you. He detailed it on an episode of WTF with Mark Marin. Um, and, uh, which I don't think is among the free episodes anymore. You'd have to pay for it. But, uh, Norman Rockwell is bleeding Christopher Titus. That's really, really worth looking at. Um, Leary's stuff about his dad, the Irish men and paneling thing and some of the other stuff. Really, really, really funny as well. Um, the other reason that I can't, pissing this album too much is that this is what got me into real comedy up until then i was familiar with what i would see on like comic strip live the sunday comics these are shows that ran on the fox network um back in like 91 92 um and then what i'd see on star search so my experience with stand-up comedy at this point was carrot top and geechee guy until this then I sought out whatever I could find, not just by Leary, by other people. I, I found George Carlin. I found Dennis Miller. I really got into Dennis Miller for a while. Uh, found some old comic relief albums and tapes at the library that I would tape. Um, there were some Robin Williams bits. Uh, you know, other other comedians. Uh, Richard Pryor. I remember checking out. Um, I, I'm now I'm a huge fan of like Patton Oswalt. Uh, and and what have you, and you know, I don't have to have necessarily dirty comedy, but this this got me into kind of another level of comedy rather than this kind of clean, funny, family-friendly comedy. Um, so I can't fault this album; it, it is showing its age a little, uh, to be honest with you. And there are bits where I'm listening to them like oh, this is a little dated, and I but I can't fault it too much because it was my gateway. My favorite bit on the album, yeah, I listen to asshole just because. It's a novelty hit that was, like, huge in the early 90s. And, and you don't get that as much. You get that from time to time, but you don't get it, you know, as much. And uh, it cracked me up because I remember reading an, issue, an article in the New York Times around the time that uh, CeeLo Green's Fuck You came out. And they were talking about it. was the New York Times or Post or one of those other publications about how is this the new normal of, like, cursing and songs. I was like, wait... Asshole by Dennis Leary like 20 years ago wasn't as huge as Fuck You was but it still was big you know it's still people still knew that and still knew Dennis Leary and it still got its fair share of airplay and what have you so again this is why some journalists about pop culture should just go away um, but my favorite bit on the album NyQuil capital N little Y big fucking Q I love that fucking cue. So, give it a shot. Moving on from Dennis Leary into 
Megadeth, specifically Countdown to Extinction. No, really. I own a Megadeth album? Clearly, I was trying to fit in. Because I rarely, if ever, listened to this album all the way through when I first got it. Um, it was one of, actually probably one of the first albums I stopped listening to altogether. And I only bought it because my friends were into metal and I wanted to show how much I was into metal too, especially since I'd get such lovely questions at the lunch table as, uh, Do you all even own a CD with a parental advisory sticker on it? <laughs> and instead of asking myself why I was still hanging out with these assholes, I got a Megadeth album. And and on a realist, and I couldn't get through it. I, I'm amazed I haven't sold this or chucked this, to be completely honest with you. I mean, I couldn't even get through a song. Um, if I'm going to pick a song, because I told myself I'd pick a song off of each CD, um, I'm going to pick Symphony of Destruction, because that's the song I remember listening to the most. Now, I'm sure Megadeth still has its fans. I'm sure that people will say they're a great, great band. But even back then, I knew that they weren't the type of music I was interested in. Because as much as my tastes were getting harder and the music I, than the music I had listened to when I was younger, you know, I can't listen to the Footloose soundtrack forever, um, I was never that heavy. I mean, that just wasn't me. Even though the ninth CD... Um, on the Slitch, which isn't a full album, it's an EP, is pretty heavy, and that's broken by Nine Inch Nails. Now, unlike Megadeth, I actually did kind of go through a Nine Inch Nails phase. Beyond buying a Nine Inch Nails t-shirt, I never kind of got the image. I was always kind of this preppy, dorky guy. Um, but from about my sophomore year of high school, it's probably about the end of my freshman year of college, uh, I had quite a bit of Nine Inch Nails in my, on, my, uh, on heavy rotation. Uh, this mainly had to do with a girl in Pretty Hate Machine. And, well, that's a whole other story. But let's say it just took me a few years to actually want to listen to Pretty Hate Machine again. And before that even happened, though, there was Broken, and I picked it up as part of the Columbia House collection here. And it's an eight-song EP. It's got six tracks plus two hidden songs on tracks 98 and 99. Um, it's a placeholder of sorts between Pretty Hate and The Downward Spiral. Uh, what strikes me about this is actually how 90s it really, really is. This is, I guess, what people would call industrial metal? Or rock or alternative. I don't know how we categorize this. I mean, it's it's definitely Nine Inch Nails, but it's got that heavier driving guitar that you expect from something like I don't know Ministry. 
Uh, and um, it's definitely heavier than the other two full albums that I own. Um, Pretty Hate is is definitely of its time, of the late 80s. Um, and Downward Spiral, beyond the few songs that I remember, I didn't listen to very much, even though I, I owned it. Um, Broken, though, Broken's not actually half bad, even on a re-listen. Uh, it's not something I'd still listen to on a regular basis, especially since I don't really listen to a lot of heavy music anymore. And as dated as some of the things from the early 90s can sound, uh, this doesn't seem to be that uh, antiquated at this point. Um, I also own, by the way, Fixed, which was a remix album of what was on Broken and is just as good and worth tracking down. Uh, Both of them I think you can get off Amazon if you're buying a physical CD for under $10. Uh, I don't know if they're available on iTunes or not, um, but I would check them out. Uh, the best song on Broken to me is Wish. Uh, there's a great remix of Wish on Fixed as well. And also worth mentioning, not on Broken, but on Wish is a killer remix of the song Happiness in Slavery. Uh, and, and the hidden tracks, the first hidden track on, on Broken is worth it, and I can't remember off the top of my head what the name of it is, but it's track number 98. Unless you have the version of Broken that actually came with a small CD. I have the version of Broken that was one CD uh, and and had 99 tracks on it. My roommate in college that are one of my friends from high school had Broken, but 98 and 99 were on a very small like mini CD that you put in the player and played. Um, which is kind of cool. The packaging for Broken was cool. It's this kind of fold-out thing where there's an N, an I, and an N, and it kind of folds out almost like a marketing collateral type of thing. The the, the paper geek in me uh, likes it. Moving on, I'm going to combine items 10 and 11. I'm going to be very, very brief about them because there are two movie soundtracks to movies I'm going to be covering in future episodes. Uh, and when I do those episodes, I'm going to be talking about the soundtracks because they're vital to the experience of the movie. They're both Cameron Crowe films. One of them is Say Anything, and one of them is Singles. What I'll say is Say Anything, the soundtrack to Say Anything, which can be found on the cheap, holds up surprisingly well and is a great example of late 80s and early 90s music. Uh, And the single soundtrack is an essential album of the 90s. Both of these, like I said, they're movies by Cameron Crowe. They're absolutely excellent. And, well, um, I will move on. Except for uh, just, but but I will mention that on on the Say Anything soundtrack, you have, <clears throat> of course, you have In Your Eyes by Peter Gabriel. You have a Chili Peppers track, which is great. You have uh, some replacements, uh, a great live version of of Cult of Personality by Living Color, and then you have stuff like by Cheap Trick and Joe Satriani of all people, uh, a, a good Depeche Mode track, a Fishbone track, um, uh, solo Nancy Wilson, and from Heart. Uh, who's Crow's wife, and and a, and a song by a group called Fry High, which is which is really really good. Singles has Alice in Chains 
Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Mother Love Bone, The Smashing Pumpkins, Paul, some solo Paul Westerberg, uh, The Love Mongers, which is Anna Nancy Wilson of Heart, Post Heart, uh, a little bit of Jimi Hendrix, The Screaming Trees, Mud Honey, uh, Chris Cornell's solo track, and I think that is it. But moving on, uh, the penultimate piece for this is Core by Stone Temple Pilots. This is a solid album from a band that had two great albums and then one not so great album in the, in, through the 90s. Because uh, I think the fourth album came out in the early 2000s, if I don't if I recall correctly. Personally, between Core and Purple, I actually like Purple better. Uh, Purple came out in 94. Uh, Purple has Vaseline, Interstate Love Song, a few other songs, and I absolutely love Interstate Love Song. Um, just because I'm a girl. Uh, no, I'm kidding. It's it's a great, great, great song. Anyway, Core. Core holds up pretty well. It's a lot better, at least in my mind, than Dirt. Uh, it holds up a lot better than Dirt. Uh, again, but then again, that's just me. I, I preferred Stone Temple Pilots to Alice in Chains. Uh, also preferred Pearl Jam to Nirvana. Uh, this song, this album, sorry, this album was on the required listening list that I made uh, when I started compiling, like, you know, who do I want to who do I want to listen to? And whereas groups like Megadeth and Alice in Chains fell by the wayside pretty quickly, I remember holding on to Stone Temple Pilots for at least a few years uh, beyond high school, and I still keep some of their songs in rotation on, on my iPod. Uh, there's definitely songs in the album that sound very much like what you'd expect from the early 90s, Thankfully, they're not as plodding and tedious as some other band's songs. I think that's why they've stood the test of time, at least with me. Uh, my f- two favorites on the album are Plush uh, first, which is an obvious choice because that was the band's first huge song, and it was on the radio all the time. In fact, I'm probably pretty sure I taped it off of the radio at one point. Um, and the other one is Wicked Garden, uh, which I don't have much to say about, except that I re- just really, really like the song. Uh and so if if you're looking for 90s music, you need to pick a few tracks off of Core to put on a, on a playlist or a compilation album because it's just, it's just that good. Finally, our last album uh, and our last soundtrack on the list, uh, the second album on the list that shows the death of the 80s, that's the soundtrack to Wayne's World. So I think that this was a required CD at the time because A, that movie was huge. B, Bohemian Rhapsody, people. 
because if you look at the selection of the songs on the album, it's really 80s heavy. Uh, you got Cinderella, Alice Cooper, The Bullet Boys. It's at a time when bands like that or acts like that were struggling to hang on to their relevance. Because I want to say this album came out in 92 or even early 93. Uh, but the movie did phenomenally well. Whereas Last Action Hero tanked. Why? First of all, like I said, it's a great movie. It's funny. It's witty. It's it's just amazing. It's one of the it's one of the things you hold up when you're looking at a Saturday Night Live inspired movie and say this is the best. I think this is even better than say Blues Brothers. Um, even though Blues Brothers is a good movie, I would put Wayne's World above it. It's it's a very very good movie. Wayne's World Two not so much. Not Wayne's World Two isn't horrible by any chance of the movie, but it's definitely not as as good as the first one. Uh, the other reason. Um, it's great satire. It's satire that pokes fun at the culture of the time or of that rock culture. Um, and so these songs being included in a soundtrack works because it feels, even though it's not completely done ironically, it has that air of the irony that was kind of running through a lot of the early 90s. There are some gems on the soundtrack. Uh, although you can find those mostly in other places, so you don't actually have to go buy the Wayne's World soundtrack to get these. Bohemian Rhapsody, which I mentioned, um, seek out a Queen Greatest Hits collection anyway, because if you don't have a Queen Greatest Hits collection, you need Queen. You need Queen in your music collection. I listened to a shit ton of Queen in high school. I listened to like 80s Queen, which... Uh, does not stood the test of time, at least for me. Um, a Kind of Magic is a good album to a certain extent. Uh, I still love Prince of the Universe. There is some stuff off Innuendo that is absolutely beautiful. The Miracle, not a great album. Uh, the Works has some great stuff. I love Hammer to Fall. The Hot Space album, aside from Under Pressure. But, and then the 70s Queen, like, fucking Yeah. But um, I was listening to Queen 2 all the way through the other day at work. Somebody popped his head and was like, what are you listening to? I'm like, Queen 2. And they're like, oh, this isn't as bad as I remember. I'm like, of course not, it's Queen. Anyway, Bohemian Rhapsody. Make sure you have this. Um, Foxy Lady by Jimi Hendrix. Again, get a Jimi Hendrix compilation or just download some Jimi Hendrix songs. Anyway, you know, you don't need to get the Wayne's World soundtrack for this. Uh, Dreamweaver by Gary Wright. Yes, I know. It's a cheesy song, but it's 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 cheesy goodness, and there's always room for cheesy goodness in your music collection. But then again, just the beauty of iTunes and and download or Amazon and downloading single the fact that you can download singles like this is that you don't have to go and buy spend 15 bucks on a CD anymore to get two songs. Um which is probably would kill the CD, but um these three songs are all ones that are that are really worth worth getting just on their own. There's that Tia Carrere cover of Ballroom Blitz that is played at the end of the movie. Go find the original version by Sweet and get that, because that's a great song anyway. Uh, I will recommend one track, and if you find it in, in single form, MP3 form, find it. It's I might be mispronouncing this. Sika, Sika Mika Nico Sikamikaniko by the by Red Hot Chili Peppers. Um, it's early '90s. It was a B-side to Under the Bridge from the Blood Sugar Sex Magic album, and it reminds you how 
freaking good the Chili Peppers were in the late 80s or early 90s when things were up-temple and ballsy and just, you know, good, as opposed to everything just being kind of slow-tempoed and having the word California in it. So yeah, so that's the 13. And uh, looking at these albums, thinking about what I had there, there's a lot of anger (laughs) and aggression. I mean, I know I was a teenage boy, but I wasn't angry as a teenage boy. I never really rebelled. The closest I ever got to rebellion as a teenager was dating a girl my parents hated. But for the most part, I was like a really good student. You know, I think my wife at one point did refer to me as, you're like Captain America. Um, in that sort of white bread kid sort of way. I mean, I was... You know, I was I was this dorky guy. I never really had never really had a Holden Caulfield grudge against the world or was never the depressed wear black and read Neil Gaiman and listen to the cure all the time type, although I have read Sandman. Um I was a dork. I love superhero comics. I love Billy Joel. I love Bruce Springsteen. I still love Billy Joel and Bruce Springsteen. I listen to Queen all the time and still love listening to Queen. So a lot of the music here was against type. It was me trying to fit in in some cases. It was me trying to branch out in some cases. And I think that's why not all of it stuck. There was no Metallica. I didn't get any Metallica through Columbia House. I don't know if they offered any Metallica through Columbia House, but um, I eventually had all of the albums up to the Black Album, then bought Load, bought Reload, bought Garage Inc. And Garage Inc. was the last album I bought. And I remember that I felt like I outgrew Metallica at a point. Like, it was... That wasn't me, so to speak. And what stuck, though, was... Was this sort of, like I said, Green Day, The Clash, uh, some more up-tempo stuff. Some stuff that was a little more pop. Um, once I graduated high school, once I went on to college and started realizing that I could just kind of get musical tastes and listen to music that was not exactly what my friends were listening to and was stuff that I liked or in some cases just kind of random stuff that I saw from people hey, I've always wanted to hear that album borrowed it or went out and got it myself that I really shouldn't give a shit that I might be made fun of for say owning an Indigo Girls CD or Sarah McLachlan album it wasn't that big of a deal anymore and, and I think that's why I have such a huge music collection but but I will give the Columbia House albums uh, these, these CDs, these 13 CDs credit for what did stick and that's that I liked music a hell of a lot more than I had before then I had a few cassettes before then but when I started getting CDs I was able to really branch out Uh, my library, public library believe it or not had a ton of CDs and I would get them out and I'd tape them and I was making a lot more mixtapes I had been taping songs off the radio and and I remember this specifically um, sitting there about 8th grade and uh, the one kind of with it album that I owned at the time was Violator by Depeche Mode, and I remember sitting in like an English class with a group because it was we were put into groups for some project, and a couple of people were talking about tapes they were listening to, and somebody brought up Depeche Mode, and, and I said, oh yeah, I have the album, and, and for once didn't get made fun of for the fact that I like Depeche Mode, and even today I'm like, yeah, Depeche Mode not so much, although Personal Jesus is a really fucking good song. Um, one of them said, yeah, I have these kind of 
tapes I put together, and you know, I have like, you know, and like I, I have like, oh, I have like, you know, Bob's Greatest Hits Volume One or whatever. And I thought, oh, that's a cool idea. Like, you know, get a bunch of songs that you like and and put together, you know, put them on a tape so you can listen to the tape all the time. A mixtape, right? Um, this is how I get introduced to concepts. And so I started. I had been on and off for years taping stuff off the radio that I liked and and usually lost the tapes but I started keeping a cassette tape in my radio and when I would listen to the radio after school it made sure it was queued up to where the next bit of silence was and would hit record when I heard a song that I really liked and wanted to listen to and I started calling those tapes Tom's Crap you know instead of like Tom's Greatest it's Tom's Crap um and at that time, I had like two or three different kind of compilations of it, and, and I remember um, taping stuff that I got off CDs at the library, and then at the end of my junior year, I, I was going on a trip to Europe, and I needed music to listen to in my Walkman. I had like a ton of batteries in my Walkman, and what I did was, I remember it was it was the day after the Rangers won the Cup. I got on my bike, I rode my bike to school that morning, took my pre-calculus final, then rode my bike over to Middle Earth Records in Oakdale, bought two or three packages of Maxell 120-minute cassette tapes. I remember getting the normal instead of the metal tapes because the normal tapes, um, I know they sounded better in my Walkman for some reason. Um, anyway, uh, but I had Maxell 120-minute long tapes, and I just copied everything I've been listening to. So ton of Pearl Jam, a ton of STP. I had 10,000 Maniacs in there. I had some Metallica. I had some uh, some other stuff. And and on the course of that trip, which was two or three weeks across the kind of Western Europe, uh, I was with a group of other teenagers from New York and Connecticut, and we were trading tapes back and forth. Uh, it was there that I really got to listen to the Violent Femmes for the first time, Beyond Blister and the Sun. Um was introduced to groups like the Steve Miller Band, um, some other some other groups that I that I remember uh, really really liking as a result, um, and would end up getting getting tapes and, and CDs of. I remember giving one girl um, a Metallica tape that I had. It was like Metallica's Black Album, a couple of Ministry songs, a Megadeth song, or something or whatever. And uh, she's, she kept listening to it, kept listening to it, kept listening to it. And by the end of the trip, I said, you know, you can have it. So I think that's the first time I actually ever gave a girl a mixtape. It wouldn't be the last, trust me. Um, I didn't make the tape specifically for her. I just gave her the tape. But uh, but I remember that was that was an important trip in my life. And that's a totally, totally different story. Um, mixtapes and, and this trip, and, and it's it's something that maybe one day I will dig up the tales of that and turn it into a blog post or a podcast or something. Uh, but right now it's not right now we're at the end of the episode and, uh, and, and which was fun. I know I, I moved kind of fast through it for an hour and a half long or so episode to cover 13 albums. Isn't really going to get too in depth, but it, I had fun. I had fun reflecting a little bit on what I was like 20 years ago on my 16th birthday, and I hope you enjoyed it. And if you're interested in any of the music, go ahead and check out iTunes. Um, if you go through Amazon, I'm going to plug a friend's uh, podcaster site, even though I'm getting no sponsorship for them for it. If you go to twotruefreaks.com and they have an Amazon link and you click through, you'll just get right to Amazon.com. 
but what will happen is they'll get like a re little referral kickback from that um, if you buy anything. Uh, Choo Choo Freaks is a great, great website of several podcasts about comic books and geek stuff that I listen to um, all the time. Star Wars, Star Trek, horror movies. There's Hey Kids Comics, um, which is co another comic podcast. Uh, just one of the guys, the Green Lantern podcast, which I'll be guesting on uh, at some point in the near future. Check out Two True Freaks. Click on the Amazon link. Go buy music that you're interested in. They'll get a little help them out. I, I love any time I can help those guys out. Um, and if things go my way and things go well, I'll actually be spending the summer here every two weeks with you. I'm going to go bi-weekly for the summer, just like comic books used to do in the early 90s. So um, next time up, I'm going to take a look at one of my favorite movies of all time. Then in July or late July and into early or into early August, I'll be taking, I'll be doing an episode that um, is going to be, it's going to be pretty long, pretty sweet. Uh, and it's a topic that's very personal, but it's, it's pretty awesome. Um, and if that's not a plug, well, you know, or tease, I don't know what it is. So anyway, thank you again for listening. I hope you have a great night uh, and a great summer and, Come back next time. You have reached the end of another episode of Pop Culture Affidavit. All music, clips, or other material used in this podcast are the property of their respective copyright holders. And as this podcast is intended for entertainment and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Clips, pictures, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, a blog where each week I take a look at a random thing in the world of popular culture and give my opinion as well as personal experience and memories I have with it, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback and other comments about this podcast can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and come back next time for some more pop culture randomness. Pop culture.